Because we'll, we'll, get, we'll concoct a million reasons why I can walk out of the relationship if I find I don't like you. Marriage says you've got to stay, and that's when love takes place. It's a commitment to give your best to the other, if even in the face of their worth. Okay? What else? How, how do you know this is happening? So I feel supported, encouraged, even as my wife sees my sin, she's there to walk with me. She doesn't disdain me or despise me because of my sin. What else, guys? Engaging in the means of grace together. Okay, such as? Worship, prayer, fellowship. Means of grace. Do you pray together? Do you share what's going on in God's Word together? Worship. It's always a good idea to literally worship together in church if you're able. Some of you moms have to be out with kids or sometimes you're helping in nursery or whatever, but it's a really spiritually positive thing to worship together. Good. Rock? Communication. And, um, specifically, like, we know that Brockman's have a healthy marriage because they say what they mean and they mean what they say. They're, they're able to communicate and discuss honestly, respectfully, transparently what needs to be talked about. Is that what you mean? Uh, yes. I can't see. Can't claim that for us, but the, that's the goal. <laughs> that's the goal. That's the goal. Do we fall short of the goal? Yeah, why? A lot of reasons. Maybe sin, fear, maybe a lack of respect. I would put the word respect in this. What's the best reason to respect your spouse? What's that? God says so. God says so, and you're an image bearer. Remember long ago in the class at the, the first wedding in the Garden of Eden, Jesus brings Eve to Adam, and Jesus is saying, this is my gift to you, and basically to Adam, this is my gift for you. If you never lose sight of that, oh, my spouse is God's gift to me. So you get this vertical perspective first. Thank you for this gift. It's, it's a, a lot easier to, to respect and honor that person as a person, as God's gift to you. What else? <clears throat> How would you know this was a healthy relationship? Forgiveness. Okay, Huang, why is that important? Forgiveness? It's, um, it's, um, nice and loud so they can hear you in the back. It's it showing what Jesus has done for us. Okay. We are able to do that among each other, and even to demonstrate it to our kids. Good. Your kids are watching. How do your kids learn the gospel? What's one of the ways your kids learn the gospel? They look at you. Sure, you teach them out of the book. We have children's church. We have wonderful Sunday school program here, youth leaders, etc. But you're, you're the walking gospel to your kids. How do they see you resolve conflict? How do they see you forgive each other? How do they see you repenting? I would say as a dad, I was not a great example of being the lead repenter in our family. I don't think my kids could say after living with you for 18 years, we really saw consistently modeled, humble gospel-centered repentance in our dad. I don't think they saw that at all. So parents of younger kids, don't make that mistake. And we are going to hurt each other. And anytime you hurt each other, you sort of broken the bone, as it were, and we'll see in the sermon this morning that Galatians 1 says you seek to restore 
make it back to the way it's created. <coughs> so sin creates a breach in a relationship. We've got to forgive each other and therefore, thereby create a window through which other, not just our kids, but the world sees what? As we forgive each other, it sees Christ's love for the church. There's a lot at stake. Okay, the good answers there. So the question is, what, what, what are the tangible things you're doing, you and your spouse, that actually mirror each other to move you to this place? And I don't know if you remember from last week's sermon, we had a wonderful definition of love in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Anybody remember what we said love was based on that text? Okay, that's all right. Love always seeks to do good to one another. So healthy marriage has your eyes on the other person asking what question? What is good for them? What are some ways to answer that question? Well, one thing Rock's already shared us this morning is one way to answer it is their love language. What are some other ways to answer the question as you think about I'm called to, to love my spouse by doing good to them? What are a number of answers to that question? Lindsay? Give them the benefit of the doubt. When there's a difference, there's a conflict. Think the best of them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Good answer. Give them the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to be a spouse that's like, you feel like I'm always on trial. One false move and I've had it. I'm walking on eggshells around here. No, no, you want to, you, there needs to be a freedom and a liberty to be a sinner in the relationship. Because that's what you are. Okay, give them the benefit of the doubt. What's another way you can do good to your spouse? <coughs> Always seek to do what is good for each other and all people. Pray. Pray for them. How many husbands pray for their spouses in their... Well, you don't have to raise your hand. Tal, <laughs> <laughs> you pray for her. Do you pray for Juan in her presence? Yeah. Yeah, good. Do you think she appreciates that? She does. Have you been married how many years, pal? Let me count. Feels like a long time. So you end up, I pray for Janice almost every night, and we have a nighttime routine. And uh, we, I pray for the kids, pray for Janice. Is it pretty much the same stuff, honey? Yeah. Well, if I'm committing the same sin, I need to ask for forgiveness, but I'm asking Jesus' blessing on my wife. There's only so many things I'm going to end up praying, right? It's pretty much the same stuff. Is that okay with you? Yeah. So pray for them. Janice is a spontaneous prayer. We hear about a need, she'll just start praying. Lord, or if I'm in crisis, Lord, help my, you know, she'll pray. So I feel loved by that. And that, that puts the relationship where? It consciously and complete dependence upon Jesus, which is a good thing. What's another way you can do good to your spouse? Listen. Listen to them. Radu, want to elaborate? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> what? That's what I hear. I don't practice. That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> Well, at least you know that much. 
Yeah. So that would be the key to good communication, wouldn't it? Listening to them. Okay. And that's an aspect of respect. Yes. Your spouse doesn't feel like you're condescending. Right. Good. You don't believe that you're talking to someone lower than you. You don't believe you're superior. You're not going down to this person's level. Good. And that calls to mind, I don't know, you, you were here last week, I'm not sure you weren't, yeah. But one of the things we looked at was ways spouses hurt each other, and one of those ways is the one feels superior to the other. And that, that's really a good way to have a conversation, isn't it? You start a conversation or resolving a conflict with somebody, and you're really sure they think they're superior. That's going to go really well. <laughs> Where's the humility? Because um, First First Peter five says, "Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God." You know, you'll know if you're spending time with somebody who's been under the mighty hand of God. You will know. You can't be under the mighty hand of God and be haughty. You can't stay under the mighty hand of God and think you're right all the time. You just can't. You'll know. And that verb, clothe yourselves with humility, I don't know if you remember the sermon series a long time ago, is that, that means to take up a servant's apron. You put on a servant's apron. That means if your fundamental attitude towards your spouse is, what can I do to serve you? And that question is answered by, what are the needs going on around you, that person's personal preferences. It's kind of a love language, this thing. How can I serve you? Okay, so we're going to have a good relationship, and this is mirrored, both sides, both sides of the relationship, husband and wife, both asking the same question, Lord Jesus, fill me with grace that I can bring good to my spouse. And then if you want to be specific, tease it out with, honey, are there two things particularly, two positive things I can be doing that are important to you that, that foster this sense of encouraging, loving, enjoying, managing sin, forgiving things. What are two specific things I can do that are important to you? They may not be love languages, but it's two specific things. And guess what's next? Two things I can stop doing or try not to do. Here are two things that... That, that hurt the relationship, hurt our companionship. Now, a healthy relationship would be if a husband takes leadership in this and says, let me start. I want to know the two things that would really promote what is good for you. Tell me those two things. And what are the two things that would really be meaningful to you that I can stop doing that hurt the relationship? So take the lead there. And again, you're looking for a mirroring of both sides. And then the other spouse does the same thing. So add to this, when we disagree, I'm not accusing you. When we disagree, I'm not impugning your motives. When we disagree, I'd rather be wrong. There's this amazing thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when Christians are suing each other in the, in the Corinthian church. You know what he says in that context? <clears throat> Why not rather be wrong? Just bite it. Bite the bullet. Absorb the cost. Why not rather be wrong? Remember we said in this class there's no scoreboard in heaven about arguments one. And men, men tend to think this way. Men tend to be rational. Let's, let's, let's win the argument. Let's solve the problem. And that's wonderful. We, 
these are, as a rule, this is the way women are more intuitive, they're more feeling oriented, and, you know, Jesus was the perfect combination of those things. And the whole design, of the, one of the designs of marriages is where you're different. This is Mike on this part of the continuum, Janice is here. The whole point is, my wife is in my life to pull me to be a slightly different person. You know, here's Jesus' perfection of whatever it is, people-oriented, task-oriented, intuitive, cognitive, you know, more thinking, whatever it is. So I need what my wife brings to the table. And what must be in my heart to acknowledge, you know, I need to change. This relationship doesn't benefit most when I stay static. What must be in my heart to, be, to believe that? Humility. Humility. And sometimes we need wisdom. Is it look before you leap, or he who hesitates is lost? Both of those sayings are true, aren't they? Look before you leap, he who hesitates is lost. Well, you need wisdom to know the difference between those two things. So you should be reading Proverbs every day. <laughs> All right. Any thoughts about this before we move on? What's the greatest thought you can tell yourself right here as you begin the day, you roll out of bed, you put your feet on the floor, you begin to think about relating to your spouse? What's the most helpful thing you can tell yourself to prime the pump of grace and showing mercy? What's the most helpful thing you can tell yourself, do you think? Joe? Um, spouse is giving me for my good. Okay. Okay. This is a distinct blessing, God's gift to me. This is for my good, whatever conflict comes, struggles, differences, this is ultimately for my good. Another answer? Lindsay? Did I see a hand go up? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Translated? I am not going to hell. What would you be like if you threw your foot on the floor and the first thing you, you, you say is, oh my goodness, there's only two eternal destinies. Absolute bliss in the presence of God forever on the renewed earth or unspeakable agony in hell forever. I am not going to hell. I mean, really. Hell is real and I'm not going there through the death of Jesus. What, what would that do to you? It puts everything in perspective. These little things that your wife does that bother you, the big things your wife does that bother you, that is absolutely nothing compared to hell and what you're sending to Jesus. One of the reasons I'm, when I read in my daily devotions, I start with Psalms, Proverbs, what was today, Proverbs uh, 11, Tens of 12. Twelve. Was it twelve? Was it twelve? Um, somewhere else in the Old Testament, Micah. For me, it's just happened to be Micah. That means it began in Genesis a long time ago. And finally, Micah. I read Gospels and then somewhere non-Gospels. One of the benefits of reading uh, a chapter of the Gospels every day is every month you're con you're confronted with the crucifixion, and it just never sort of takes the, it never ceases to take the wind out of your gut. You just feel like, oh, when you read what happened to Jesus. And you go, I did that. My sin did that. So it's, it's just, it's, and that's, you, you're in a church that's gospel-centered. Your songs, your reading, everything that goes on here is about the gospel for that very reason. Okay. Questions or thoughts about this? The humble heart will say, honey, if this is what we're trying to accomplish, from my part, am I doing that? 
Just a mind doing that? Are you experiencing it? Okay. So let's go to the... Any other thoughts or comments? The handout, our question is number nine. It's not the front where it says love languages. It's not communication jammers. It's what is your greatest fear entering this marriage? That's a question I ask engaged couples. Most people think along these lines. I won't be loved like I really want. We'll grow out of our compatibility. I'll wake up one day terribly lonely. Is that a legitimate fear? To wake up in a horrible marriage? Yeah. I mean, nobody really wants... Nobody set back for that. And that is why people get divorced. Sort of ultimately. They're in a terrible place. Very sad. Very, very sad. So I'll ask young couples this. What is your greatest fear? I get a number of different answers. What What do you think the answers I typically get? What's your greatest fear entering this relationship? Can you think back to when you were engaged or think to what, if you have kids that were going through premarriage? What what do you think is or what was your greatest fear in anyway, your marriage? No looking at the answers. Outgrowing <laughs> somebody in, in compatibility. Okay. Like you just drifting like the person you marry and as you're changing, they're not necessarily changing along. Good. Divergence, I guess. Di- you're sort of doing this. Yeah. Right. And, and what do you think is the most often case that happens? One of them becomes a Christian and the other doesn't. And boy, does that create a difference. And right, the unbeliever goes, I didn't sign up for this. When we were engaged and got married, you weren't believing all this Jesus stuff. What's up with that? I mean, can you understand how that would be? Right? But the person who becomes a Christian, there's no turning back. I mean, right? You're delivered from hell. How do you turn back on Jesus? So that can be one thing. But maybe two Christians get married, and then what happens? There's this big divergence. What would contribute to that? This growing apart. What? Unchecked sin. Unchecked sin and unrealistic expectations. So you wake up one morning and you realize, I didn't marry myself. I married a bigger sinner than I thought. And I've seen marriages dissolve because one of the spouses, I think, was shell-shocked to wake up and realize, holy stink, I'm married to a big sinner. As Paul Tripp's book on marriage says, what were you expecting? What were you expecting? And then again, if that person doesn't see themselves as a big sinner, and they're married to a big sinner, that headed for a disaster. Anything else? What were some of the fears people have? You think? Yeah. Differences in, not, not theological, but growing up, like lifestyle differences, I guess. Good. Perspectives on money. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. So that's one of, the, one of the questions I ask in premarriage counseling is, are you both headed in the same direction in life? Do you want to have the same number of kids? You know, are you going to cancel each other out of the ballot box? You're going to vote pro-life, I'm going to vote pro-choice. Those are pretty important things to know before you get married, aren't they? Um, Somebody has a dream to, uh, they want to be a millionaire. 
and they're married to a man that doesn't have any interest in making a million dollars. Is that a problem? Another one, real life example. I've, I've had a friend for 40 years. He met his he met his fiance at the University of Virginia. He had done missions trips to Africa. Was in a varsity. Had a lifelong call to be a missionary. They got married. Lived for a few years. He went to seminary. They started the itineration process to go overseas. And guess what? It turns out she's not interested. And that's a serious change in life calling. So it's what you were saying. Are you headed in the same direction in life? Now, if you get down the road and you realize, wow, we're seeing some differences here, what should you do? Talk about it. Get some help. See somebody. Pull in a counselor. Um, these things can be worked out in the economy of God. Okay. Any other thoughts on fears? Somebody read that out loud for us. This paragraph that is most helpful. Who would read that for us? Nice and loud and clear and slowly for us. <clears throat> Lindsay? It is most helpful to understand that despite your sense of being very like at the beginning of the romance because of sin, no two sinners are per- perfectly compatible. Once sin entered into Adam and Eve's relationship, they started hiding from God, the death knell of all, relations, of all relational health, blaming each other in suspicion, discord, and shame. If you really knew me, you'd reject me. Therefore, your greatest fear should be Thank you. When relationships are new, you really are focused on how much you have in common. And what don't you see, typically? Your sins. Your sins. So you always want to get married with eyes wide open, if possible. Again, what's happening at the altar is you're saying... Of all the men in the world, of all the sinners in the world, of all the broken men in the world, this is the wife speaking, I am taking you and all of your crap because God has called me into that to be an agent of that, of healing, sanctification, growth and grace, holiness, righteousness. I'm called into that and vice versa. So in, instead of exchanging rings, at, wedding ba- at weddings, we should exchange sins. No, you know what I mean. But it's just entering eyes wide open. I didn't start marriage that way, and I think it made our relationship worse as a result. I thought Janice needed to be like me. I was arrogant and proud and didn't know it. I didn't know it. That's not good. So marriage tends to expose all this stuff. Anytime you put two sinners under one roof, what are you going to have? Conflict. Strife. Sin. Okay, and notice that it says in there, once sin entered into Adam and Ray's relationship, they started hiding from God, the death knell of all relational health. You can't be at peace with another person and their sin unless what? You're first at peace with God. You can't be hiding from God and have a good relationship. Because at a deep level, you're hiding from God. There's something going on in your soul that's dealing with that that you're going to demand of the other person or take out on the other person. And God in His grace, they're hiding from uh, Adam and Eve, they're hiding from God. What does God do in His grace? He goes after them. Where are you? That wasn't for God's benefit, it was for theirs. He draws them out of hiding. So healthy, healthy marriage starts with saying, 
Hey, honey, here's how I'm tempted to hide from God. Here am I. Did we look at fig leaves already in our class? I'm, so I'm doing premarriage counseling with a couple of different people, and some of this all runs together in my feeble mind. Sorry. Somebody read the next paragraph, then, source that begins your greatest concern. Who would read that for us? Thank you. Your greatest concern should be yours. We naturally think of the other sin as the greatest potential problem. That's why most folks get on the defense of the sinner and leave. Jesus says we all have an uncanny tendency to spot that others eye before we see planks in our homes. If that is true, you must learn to be quite conscious before you respect conscience. Are you humble enough to admit and call this comes is inevitable with you sin and your pride may be the biggest problem? Okay, so intuitively, <coughs> how are we wired when it comes to conflict? How are we wired intuitively? Blame. Defensive. Right? One finger, but oh, wait, there's you know three pointing back at me. That's really a good analogy. So it's three, three planks in my eye that I don't see, one speck in yours. And if it was to change, oh my... <laughs> So what if you begin conflict with, with when you sit down to resolve a conflict and you said, I'm probably the greater, greater offender here. Let's start with that assumption. How many people intuitively start with that assumption? Not many of us. And you, look, you can't start there without Jesus, right? Without knowing the love of Christ, the acceptance you have in Christ, the glory that you are in Christ. Therefore, you have nothing to prove. Nothing to leave. You're not going to be about winning arguments if you're utterly secure and smitten in the love of Jesus. It sets you free to admit fault, failure, to then resolve conflict in a healthy way. So think about where do you get defensive in your relationship? What's at the core of that defensiveness? What are you defending? Somebody read the third paragraph for us then. The, the, great, the greatest threat. Who's going to read that for us? Thanks. The greatest threat is your sin. My pride, selfishness, neediness, pettiness, demandingness. However, it is manifested. We'll steal what I owe the other. Unconditional love and service in Jesus' name. Daily repentance of being a vacuum of self-concern is the path to freedom. Thank you. So you, you get up in the morning, you throw your feet on the floor. After your first thought is, I've been rescued from... Hell. Your second thought is for a healthy marriage and other relationships, frankly. Your second thought is if left to myself, I ruin this relationship. I'm highly suspect of myself. My sin, my pettiness, my demandingness, whatever it is, however it manifests, my indwelling sin manifests itself in my life, that is the greatest threat to my marriage. How many of us wake up that way and say that? Doesn't the gospel require that of us? Try it. Chris. Don't we need to wake up and say I'm justified and I'm, I'm a child of God? You know what I mean? I think that we have to do that as well. We have to say that I'm loved, I've been forgiven. Good. Absolutely. So if the first thought is... And so here's what Chris is saying. This is, that's a good point. And I completely agree. How, how, do you, 
how do you um, well it's it's this what side of the butt do you live on there's really sort of two ways to live you say I'm a big sinner but I'm forgiven or you can say I'm forgiven but I'm a big sinner one of those main ideas you carry with you the rest of the day and it forms your identity. Chris is saying we should get up in the morning and say, well, and I'm saying, it's okay, that I'm a big sinner, but I'm loved, I'm forgiven, I'm in Christ, I'm set free from not only the penalty of sin, but the tyranny of sin. If we say, I'm forgiven, but I'm still a big sinner, you, first of all, you're not a sinner, you're a saint who struggles with sin. The New Testament doesn't address you as sinners. It addresses you as saints who struggle with sin. I'm forgiven, but I'm, I'm a sinner. That's the way you think of yourself. That's sort of what you expect of yourself. Versus, I'm a sinner, but I'm loved by Jesus. So the first step is, I'm not going to hell. The second step is, don't, Lord, don't let my sin ruin this relationship. I am helpless over that, so I run to Jesus. I run to Jesus. And the one thing we know about the Savior is he never despises the weak. He never despises sinners. He welcomes them into his gentle and humble heart. Because if I get up in the morning and say, don't let my sin ruin this relationship, I'm going to find a less than sanctified way to manage that sin. The only one who can manage my sin in a sanctified way is Jesus. And I run to Jesus, and what does he do? He washes me in his grace. He fills me with his mercy. He assures me of his love. He grounds me in my identity in Christ. And now I'm ready to do this stuff. Seek what is good for my spouse. Does that make sense, Janice? Do you think if we have the attitude that we're forgiven first, we might have a tendency to underestimate the effect of our sin on ourselves and on others and on our relationships? Maybe. You know, I, I think this idea of Say presumption... Can you hear her? This idea of presumption, you know, we presume upon the fact that what Christ has done for us and therefore we underestimate the effect of what our failures uh, have on our, ourselves, on our spouses, on our relationships. Yes. Yeah, so there's a danger if you don't start with looking at your sin of glossing over it. You wake up and you're wondering, oh, I'm forgiven. Of what? So what's the best way... Incidentally, what's the, what time is it? It's 10.20 now. Way over time. This is the last remark, then we've got to end. What's the best way to confess that with integrity? <coughs> Open up this book and ask Jesus to show you your sin. And never do that without also asking him to show you who? Jesus. Thank to be continued. Let me pray for y'all. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters, married and unmarried. Give us grace to do relationships full of grace, full of the love of Jesus, with integrity about our own sin and frailty. And now, Lord, as we go into worship, fill us with your spirit that we might offer to the Lord Jesus, his God and our God, praise, adoration, obedience, delight that you are worthy of. Do that by the power of your spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you.